told to give a talk on a different evening. And then uh, someone discovered that this was the actual date that the center opened. So that I was taken out of the mothballs, shaken off, <laughs> deodorized, washed off, put in the sunshine, and said, you have to give the talk since you're the first one who started this place. So uh, it's not that the original title is irrelevant. It's always relevant, because, and perhaps we'll get to it. Um, what would help me, well, yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to, you know, I'll do my best, but, because um, we can go in so many different directions. Uh, I see a fair number of familiar faces, so you don't need to hear all the details and anecdotes and cute, colorful stuff that happened as to how this center began. But how many people are here for the very first time? A show of hands. Of those of you who have raised your hands, are you new to meditation? Raise your hand, please. Okay. So, okay. Um... Anyone here when we first opened up? I thought I was the last of the Mohicans, but okay, it's not. There are a few others, but they're not here this evening. Um, How many people have been here, uh, practiced here, for less than five years? Show of hands. Okay, that helps me a lot. Thank you. Uh, what happened was, first of all, I haven't got a clue as to how I started this place. I could lay out a very nice and neat psychological um, story about how this started, but quite frankly, I don't have a clue. I really do not like organizations, did not want to start one. I st helped start a, the, the Cambridge Zen Center, a Korean Zen Center, over in, not too far from here, near Central Square, and uh, myself and a few others and a Zen master, we worked on it for five years, and I felt that finished me off. <laughs> all the interpersonal stuff and, you know, raising money and all. Um, but then we wound up starting a center anyway, and you've heard that great wisdom, you don't always get what you want, you get what you need. Uh, so apparently I did need it because I had to unlearn. You know, in a certain way I just wanted to do things my way and be left alone, be a lone wolf. But uh, it didn't work out that way. And so I had to learn how to, a lot of new skills, and it's been invaluable for me. Um, but if you're new, you might assume that, well, of course, what's, what's so special about a center here and uh, perched between uh, Central Square, closer to Central Square than, say, Harvard Square? Nothing like this existed. Um, the very first Dharma talk, which I can, I can remember, although the opening of the center, a lot of it seems like a long time ago. And then again, it was yesterday, because it was 30 years. Um, 
the original meditation hall was where the dining room is and part of the kitchen. It was small and uh, not that uh, well filled. Uh, this was where I lived. This was your, you in my, in my kitchen, living room, bathroom. Get out. Um, and I had been, I had dropped out, I left the university, I'd been a professor for about 10 years or so, and uh, left, it may sound romantic, but uh, at times it was, but mostly it felt like I was just searching and not, not quite sure what for. But uh, it's not like people say, well, why did you leave, the, leave university life? I taught social psychology. Uh, I don't feel that I left it, I felt it left me. It's sort of something just, which is not to say it isn't a worthwhile thing to do, it is. And there, were, there were years when I really enjoyed it very much. And I just wandered for a number of years and uh, crashed with friends and students and traveled mostly in Asia and worked with Asian teachers in Asia and also here, trying different methods, approaches, different traditions, with robes, without robes, chanting in Korean and Chinese, chanting in Japanese, chanting in English, bowing 108 times every morning for five years, uh, lighting incense, hitting bells, sometimes on hot days having a whole bunch of robes. So I've paid my dues, if you think I just got this way. Um, And I did lots of long-term sitting meditation at retreat centers in Asia and here. And I think uh, most important is to not emphasize how it started, but um, it is here and why. Um, Let's see. Yeah. Um, At the time, this will help a lot. Uh, I remember the very first Dharma talk that was given here, I gave because I was the only one who knew anything. I mean, I just came back and people literally didn't know what was, what it was all about. And in giving the talk, uh, there was a reason why I picked this area, uh, an urban area, and uh, I remember the talk started, it was based on an ancient text, the Sudhimaga and another one, the Vimudhimaga, uh, which li- one of the chapters listed where you should not start a meditation center. <laughs> and we almost qualified for every one, there were I think 10 or 14, where it is, is politics is being discussed, a lot of commerce, a little very busy, a tra- intersection, marketplace, you know, the sort of so why do we start one here, of all things? Uh, one of the things that uh, became apparent to me in traveling and in going from one monastery or meditation practice center for long periods of, of uh, sitting practice, at that time, most of us thought meditation meant re- sitting. That's it. And the more you sat, the wiser you would get. If anyone thinks that, you're in for a big disappointment. You might even become dumber. You can cancel your membership now if you want to. Um, 
And what I saw was, and I was one of them, I mean, I loved to sit and did lots of three-month retreats in groups, alone, with teachers, without teachers, uh, often the country, in Asia, in different, uh, all kinds of situations. But one of the things that I saw in this country is, first of all, what was new is that there was tremendous energy among lay people. If you go to Asia, it's changed a bit, and it varies from country to country. Um, most of the heavy lifting is done by monks and nuns, mainly monks. And there are exceptions, but lay people support the project. Lay people take care of the needs of the monks and nuns, financially, food, medical care, um, a play, uh, everything, really. And so that the, let's say, the serious practitioners are monastics and their full-time job is to study and to practice and then to help lay people with their problems. Um, and are there any, were there ever any lay people who were very serious? Of course, from the time of the Buddha on. But I wouldn't say that's the dominant theme. And then suddenly it became really evident that what was going on here was there was tremendous interest among lay people and energy unprecedented for all kinds of reasons which we don't have to get into. And what I started to discover is we'd come back from uh, we'd come back from um, retreats, let's say if, how, many, how many people have never heard of IMS? This will help me. Is everyone, you've never heard of it. Insight Meditation Society. It's a retreat center uh, and it's sort of the uh, mecca of Buddhism in this area. I mean, thousands of people have done lots of very beautiful practice there, long-term, residential. Okay. What I discovered, and I was one of them, is that we would go there and sit, let's say, for three months or longer, and then come back and try to find, how do I raise money to get back for the next three-month retreat? In the meantime, there would be perhaps eight or nine months where we were just scurrying around looking for ways to raise funds so that we'd go to the next retreat. In other words, that came to stand for it, even though in the teachings it says that it's, it's a way of life. But what we were all enthralled with was the contemplative, the sitting part. That was new for us. Um, and so what I started to see was that uh, we weren't well-equipped for it, in my opinion. The, everything I'm saying now, of course, is my opinion. And I started to see that uh, a lot of the advice that monastics gave us, because our teachers were monastics, was not really that relevant. It was not relevant for the modern world, and it was not rel relevant for educated lay people, and it was not relevant for people who uh, had lives that included work and school and being unemployed and living alone, living together, all the different things that make up what is life. And so the advice would be very um, formulaic, come right out of very good advice from the time of the Buddha, 2,000 years, more, almost, more 2,500 plus. Um, and much of it is timeless and of course applies, but if something was missing and some of the advice was off and there was, in my, what I was realizing is that I would sit, I remember one time I realized that something had to change. 
I just felt like I was uh, one-tenth of an, ten seconds away from sainthood after a, a three-month retreat. The mind was so nice and peaceful and clear and full of love and compassion, etc., etc., just right out of uh, some book. Uh, and then I came home to Harvard Square at the end of the retreat, and I was the same jerk. Uh, uh, in fact, it was worse because the comparison, I, I didn't want to be here, here. I just wanted to run, scurry back to my nice, safe, to the reservation where I could be protected and nice vegetables being served and all the rest of it. And I saw that many of us were like that. And so it became clear to me that something new was called for. Uh, and out of that grew experimentation and finally CIMC emerged. Uh, just a couple of things about CIMC and then we'll get to, maybe we can get to uh, what is clear seeing. I'm not sure. Um, see how to put this. Yeah. Um, we had a choice. Someone, uh, some very, very generous person purchased this building for us and suddenly I was the head of a building and uh, this was not on my plan. And suddenly I was living up here and suddenly we had a uh, an enormous amount of work went into getting this place ready. Some of the people who were here uh, would, could tell you what it was like. It, it, f many feet of sand had to be dug out of the basement. It was a dilapidated, uh, completely neglected building. This uh, was the first birthing center, a birthing center in Cambridge. Someone wandered in about 10 years ago and I said, do you want to learn how to meditate? And he said, no, I was born here. <laughs> I deferred to him. I mean, um, and then uh, it was a doctor who lived upstairs, and then his wife died, and he married his nurse, of course, you know, and then the, the son became an alcoholic, and, you know, it's like a uh, soap opera. Uh, and what was left was this place was in shambles, and we could, um, and I had, we had to make a decision. We could get this place, or there was some place that was even larger. And the choice was: do we make it residential or not? Now, the the Cambridge Zen Center, which is where I spent five years, starting helping to start it, was residential. So many people lived there, and I realized that's exactly what we don't need. What we need is a place where. Uh, meditative life, the instructions can be shared with people, training can go on, retreats can go on, and fortunately we had IMS, Insight Meditation Society, and Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, and uh, the, far, the far, not yet, but we had a, a many places where people could go off within an hour and a half and just do residential practice. And the reason was I felt I had seen what happens, it becomes like a bad monastery. You neither here nor there. Um, and I felt like what we needed was for people to learn meditative skills, just what, is, what are these skills, and then to be uh, encouraged to leave, then be thrown, now go back to your life, not move in and have a nice cozy, we'd have about 20 residents where there, or 25. Uh, no, what's your life, whatever your life was, 
that's where our practice is. And so our challenge was how to create a practice using Dharma principles. I'm not a therapist. Uh, to listen to people and to take them seriously about problems that came up in relationship, in work, in unemployment, in uh, aging, sickness, all kinds of things, but from a different perspective, from the perspective of the, what I was steeped in, which was the Buddhist teaching, basically the Four Noble Truths. And then learning how, to, in some ways, um, the basic, the, the foundation of the teaching is timeless. The Four Noble Truths, uh, people were suffering 2,600 years ago, maybe 2 million years ago, I don't know. We're still suffering. The content changes. The stakes are much higher now with the whole planet involved. Uh, so w the, the core of the teachings is timeless. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a, of any use, frankly. It has nothing to do with a particular culture, a particular time and place, as long as, you, as human beings suffer, and there are reasons why they suffer, and they can pay attention and learn what these reasons are, and do something about it, um, then fine, then those, these teachings apply. But it has to be adapted to the culture that we live in at this time. So it's both very conservative, but not politically, it's trying to conserve something that has proven itself to be valuable over t almost pushing 3,000 years. And if we don't modify it and make it relevant to the time that we live in, it'll fail. So it's that balance. And at first, I would say myself and others, with others of the other teachers we all who were teaching each other, um, at first, I would say we were too conservative because we were not that confident. So we just brought in exactly what we learned in Asia and just try to transplant it here in Broadway. Didn't work. Then I went personally. I went to the other extreme, and was very radical and just Mr. Free Spirit. You know, here we are in the modern world, computer age, atomic. You know, and then I was so whoa, slow down. So I can't say that I've found perfection, if I ever will, if anyone ever will, but it's as close as possible to honoring the ancient teachings or timeless teachings, but yet the only way they can be effective is if they're uh, delivered in such a way that it makes sense for the life that we actually have to live as lay people who have lives that you know. And so there are teachings for this that have existed for thousands of years, even before Buddhism, in ancient, uh, since ancient Vedic times in India, where there are teachings like um, a bad situation is a good situation. That by which you fail is that by which you succeed. In other words, relationship, let's say part of it, a large part of it, uh, and I don't mean just intimate, I mean all, just humans. We're not good at that. Does anyone disagree with that? <laughs> we're terrific, we're brilliant in every other way, but we don't, we have, don't seem to learn a thing. We're kind of uh, le learning impaired. We can't seem to learn things from one generation to another. And so that of course many people want to become monks or nuns or uh, have lives that are kind of schizophrenic, where you're very spiritual in certain settings, and then you become a jerk when you leave there, kind of like a hothouse plant. 
uh, and so what we uh, what we needed to do was to change our attitude. And this is something that exists, in, as I mentioned, since ancient times. It's not something I made up. But how to bring it into 331 Broadway? And now it's spread. It's uh, some of it from here, and it's all over Europe, and it's, it's spreading where people realize that we, we need something like this. Okay, so now what? So people are, we, the attitude is, is to turn things around. That is, the world is here to set us free. So the very problematic aspects of living in the world that all of us know all too well, can we change the way we relate to it? Relationship is not just to people. It's to our own mind. It's to nature. It's to ideas. It's to everything, to technology. Can we learn how to relate to that in such a way as it helps us get free? It's not about psychological adjustment, improving the quality of your psychic life. Great. But it's designed to go beyond that. or to. It's not that, that the psychic uh, refinement is irrelevant, not at all. But there's something beyond the psyche, whether you want to call it spiritual or whatever you like. I would call it Dharma. Um, there's no word for Buddhism. It's not an ism. It's more uh, a Dharma, and that means the, the, law, the, way, the lawfulness of the way things are, of nature. And the mind and body, we're part of nature. We're not different than trees and plants and sky and so forth. And how to look at that and to learn from that. So we turn what is our most difficult challenge into a problem and stop seeing it as a problem to get away from and learn how to face it. Okay, I think I, I have found a way to connect with clear seeing. Yeah. In, in Asia, places like this are often referred to as a school. And when I first started to to speak that way, everyone advised me. There were two things I was given advice. I wanted to call it the Cambridge Vipassana Center. That's what this is. It's Vipassana meditation. Or in Sanskrit, it's Vipassana. But then, it, but then people would come in and say, what's this here, Vispassana stuff? <laughs> and there was so, many, so much mispronunciation that at a certain point, insight is good, it's fine. The problem with insight is everyone thinks they know what it means. And it's got a particular meaning uh, in Dharma language, um, which to some, some of it is overlaps with a, a just dictionary definition in English. But um, Vipassana is clear seeing. And so we changed it to insight meditation, and that was fine. Um, then what? Then uh, what we started to do was, um, I think, okay, it's a school, but then I was advised, don't call it a school. Well, why not? I said, because people are coming here because they've been destroyed by school. <laughs> they Not destroyed, that's going too far, but they've been, uh, let's say, uh, damaged by the school system, which is so highly competitive and geared to just earning a living and striving and ambition and who's on top and publishing how many books have you read you know all of this stuff and this is the academic it's one of the reasons I started it here oh 
People said, why would you want to start a center here? It must be a great sacrifice for you. I said, not at all. I'm a, I'm a city mouse. I grew up in the Lower East Side of New York and then Brooklyn, New York. This is bucolic for me. <laughs> chirp, chirp, even if it's just Mack trucks or what, you know. There was a fire, a fire, a depart, a firehouse on one corner, the, uh, an overhead train on another corner, trolley on another corner, uh, an, an ice cream parlor underneath, and uh, a diner underneath that. I thought that was the way everyone lived. So I'm at home in the city. I enjoy cities, actually. I like them. And I, of course, I, of course, I love nature, too. But So it wasn't a sacrifice. It, uh, it was, I think I'm cut out for the job, and I'm an ex-professor. So it's like the assignment, I had no choice. I understand the natives <laughs> because uh, I was a recovering uh, intellectual intel aholic, <laughs> and uh, the 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 challenge is not to throw the intellect out or knowledge. Of course not. It has a, a, a place, but it's been so vastly um, overdone. Uh, it's top-heavy. That is, we've neglected wisdom. Let me tell you uh, some of what... This is, has been important in my own biography. It may not be important to anyone else. Uh, I was in the Army of Occupation of Germany after World War II. And I got... It wasn't an accident. I was highly motivated to go there and, because being Jewish... Uh, and, and being old enough to follow it with my with adults, so I knew what was a lot of what was going on. And then when the war ended, I couldn't understand it because I used to love. Uh, I had finished college. I I loved German literature and all of classical music. There were so many beautiful things that came out of. How could they have done this? And so finally, I wound up and I lived in Germany as a soldier for two years. And what did I learn? Nothing. Germans at that generation would not speak. But over the years, what I have learned is uh, how could great philosophers and scientists have become Nazis? But they were. What I saw is there's a complete difference that can be between knowledge and wisdom. What is really scarce on the planet right now is wisdom, and wisdom of course includes compassion. You can't, real wisdom has compassion, real compassion has wisdom. And so you, you can be brilliant and have a, write the greatest treatise in the world and uh, all kinds of scientific brilliance and cultural brilliance and be a fascist and be a killer. It's possible. We see it. It's not, it's not limited to Nazi Germany. So it took me quite a while to realize that um, Wow, no, uh, just what I've been doing is filling my head full of ideas about other people. And I got a PhD doing it, uh, which was useful, social psychology. Uh, however, I didn't know myself. And wisdom, at least the Buddha's view of wisdom, it's not quoting uh, what Socrates said and what Aristotle said or whatever anyone said. Uh, uh, the Buddha's de uh, definition of wisdom is to know yourself. And not just a rhetorical device. It's, uh, and the beauty of 
the part of the of the Buddhist tradition. It's not just vipassana. Tibetan, Tibet, uh, Zen, and so forth, is they've protected and maintained uh, the contemplative practices for thousands of years, which have been lost in many uh, religions and traditions. And so it's been protected and kept alive, and some of it was given to me, and so I feel quite um, devoted to it, if you're interested in it. I'm not a, none of us here are missionaries. We're not trying to convert anyone. Okay, so the core, so wisdom is what? W wisdom is the art of living. It's not the art of quoting wise words. Or, uh, or great philosophers. It's, and how do you test that? It, it's in the quality of your life. Wisdom is learning how to live. Putting the Buddha's teaching in a different language, you'll never read. What the Buddha is saying to me is that human race, you don't have a clue as to how to live. You're just making each other miserable and it's not necessary. There are ways that exist and, and uh, that can and help you. Certainly there has to be pain if you have a body and if you're going to live and it's finite and so forth. But uh, if you are suffering so much, uh, why? And so wisdom is learning the art of living. And some of that are the guidelines that come from verbal teachings, the teachings. But the teachings are just a map of a prison pointing out one way and reason why we suffer so much and different methods and techniques to help us escape. But the Buddha at one point says, the map is not perfect, but it can help you get free. Because the, no map is going to be the same as reality. Life is too messy. It's too big and unpredictable. Uh, and as, as beautiful as some of the teachings are, uh, at a certain point, reality goes beyond it. It's just that, that energy. The concepts fall away. And it, we're just surrounded by life. And we're part of it. We're not even surrounded by life. We're part of, we're surrounding each other. We're all... And tiktanaha is a beautiful term for we're inter, uh, interbeing, we're interrelated, we're all affecting each other, and not just people, nature, everything. So, um, okay, so now let's take a look at wisdom. How does that come about? What, what is this a school? Um, oh, first of all, if school, if I say this is a school, and I, I, I usually don't say it because I think it's true. People feel, school, I came here to heal myself from what's going on in school. Um, just to reassure you, I have absolutely no authority over you. Zero. There are no grades. There are no letters of recommendation. There are no tests. Well, except life. But that's for you. You're, gonna, you're the examiner and you're also the student, um, no transcripts, it's completely worthless. If you came here and paid your hard-earned money to get here, don't blame me. What is asked of, I, I assume it, if you've come here, or you might be shopping and you should, uh, is are you interested in the quality of your life? Are you interested in starting fresh, taking a fresh look at how you actually live the key word there is actually. How do you actually live? 
scream it from the rooftops, actually, not how you think you live, the ideals that we were brought up with, even Buddhist ideals. How do you actually live from moment to moment? Okay, so now, vipassana means the number of clear seeing, direct seeing, extraordinary seeing. I would say another, a good one is accurate seeing. Let me give you two very, very simple homely examples. Please don't underestimate them. Allow it to sink in and understand the stakes, which is why clear seeing is central to what we're doing here. Uh, okay, let's see how to... My pauses are because such a varied group. It's kind of, it's not, not easy. Um, okay. Yeah. So if seeing is, is a, a crucial skill that we're learning, is, let's say we've just laid out that we're, we're paying attention not only during sitting, we give you instructions here how, how to sit. There are plenty of beginners' classes and so forth, and they're in books and they're on DVDs and videos. They're all over the place now. So we give you all that, and then you have to go out into, the, into life and pay attention and learn from what you see. Now, the challenge is immense because we have powerful conditionings that overrun us. Fears, loneliness, angers, feel, uh, wounds that have, we've been carrying around for sometimes till our death, unresolved issues, conflicts. Okay, so, and what is being said here, what the Buddha is saying is that clear seeing is a prerequisite for, uh, for wisdom to unfold. The wisdom comes out of learning. You have to be willing to learn from what you attend to. Now, seeing here is not literally just visually. Although that, that's included, of course, paying attention to whatever. But it's also it's inner seeing, and it's awareness is a good term, because it covers somehow a sense in which we are present for uh, even the distinction between inner and outer falls away at a certain point. So are we sensitive to our own life as we live out our life? At the same time that we're living out our life, are we sensitive to it? And are we willing to learn? And are we willing to acknowledge mistakes, faulty ways of living that we've repeated over and over and over again? It's not just war never stops. Everyone, every war is, is the war to end all wars. Where? We're not, we're not learning. So we're, are we ineducable? Well, I don't think so. There are people who are, have been able to use approaches like this, I don't mean just at CMC, I mean, or even Vipassana, awareness approaches. And if you, but it requires sincere, um, authentic attentiveness. Now let me give you these two very simple examples, and please don't underestimate them, because out of them, you, it might help you understand what this is getting at. They come from ancient India. One is when a pickpocket sees a saint, all he sees are pockets. You don't get it. <laughs> Maybe you don't, because saints mean nothing and pickpockets mean nothing. Pickpockets, you know, they, they steal things. Okay, and saints are, I don't know what they are, but they're 
extraordinary beings. So he doesn't see that because he's conditioned, he's only interested in, in getting some money from pockets. So that, in other words, our ability to see clearly is not something that we start with. We're conditioned. Another one, in many ways even better, uh, mistaking it's dusk, the sun is setting. I've used this example a lot and I'll continue to because it's, I think it's great. The sun is setting and you mistake a, a rope for a snake. If you don't see that accurately and you, you think it's a snake, then the body goes into action the glands start cooking, the nervous system, you might start screaming, alerting everyone to get out of there. There's a, a cobra, and it's just a rope. In other words, you haven't really seen what it is, and because you, your seeing is not accurate, your mind is not working correctly. Words that come out of your mouth are based on faulty perception, and actions are not appropriate because you don't really see what's going on, but you think you do. You're quite convinced. Okay, but what if it's the other way around? What if it, you think it's a rope and it's a snake? The consequence is even worse. So you might say, well, what does that have to do with our normal life? It has everything to do with our normal life. Because Vipassana seeing is seeing that is free of reactivity, of like and dislike, Look, we all have a history. We can't help it. And that history, you know, whether you call it racism, or you, we all have uh, inclinations, ways in which we color reality. Uh, we've been brought up a certain way. Uh, I'm a grandpa for the first time, and everyone's talking about bringing up our granddaughter. What we're doing here is we're learning how to bring ourselves up if you get on this path, on this journey. That means you're taking a fresh look. It can be very rejuvenating. For some of you great panthers, do you, oh, you don't even know what that means. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, see, uh, senior citizens are on the way. Uh, some of us very senior. Um, because you, can, you start right now. It's not like... and. Just take a fresh look. It's very rejuvenating, and there's something. But what is required is these methods are helpful, perhaps for most of us necessary. Some people are so interested in taking a look at how they live that that natural inclination is the best. We have a technical word, samadhi, stability of mind. The natural, there's nothing, no better samadhi than natural interest. If you're really interested in something, you don't need so much technique because it's authentic. It's coming from your guts, from your heart. Okay, so we need that. Uh, and you have to be, uh, sometimes it seems like for the most part, fed up with how you've been living. If you're really nice and content, what are you doing here? <laughs> It's a nice evening. Go take a nice walk along the Charles River. Go to a cafe. Okay, I don't. So that sometime, very often it seems, the, the the best motivation for getting started on this is that you recognize that something is off, or even it can be terribly off, and you want to do something about it. You don't just f uh, fall back into a fatalistic uh, discouragement and feel it's hopeless. Because it isn't. 
Countless people for thousands of years have taken this. Now, what taken what? There's so many methods. If you move from India all the way through Asia, and now it's here, so many different techniques and methods have come up over thousands of years. And lots of very intelligent, very devoted people who've devised ways of waking up. What the Buddha means, I don't like the term enlightenment because it, it, we don't know what it means. People come here sometimes and say, why are you here? I want to get enlightened. Well, what is that? I don't know. So you want something, you don't even know what it is. But wake, a Buddha is someone who's fully awake. That we have more of a grasp on. You can grasp that your degrees of alertness, of sensitivity, of receptivity, of intimacy with experience, starting with yourself. No separation. Oh, okay, I brought something, a crutch, I guess, but... It's one of my, my favorite poems. Have any of you heard of Basho, a very great Japanese poet? He's talking about poetry, but if you, if you put in... Well, I'll read it. Go to the pine if you want to learn about the pine, pine trees. Or the bamboo, if you want to learn about the bamboo. And in doing so, you must leave your subjective preoccupation with yourself. That's the key, which we all have and may not realize. Otherwise, you impose yourself on the object and do not learn your poetry. You, no, do not learn. Your poetry issues of its own accord when you and the object have become one. Now, plug in for poetry seeing, that is, uh, your, your ability to see clearly uh, is w what comes out of when you drop all your preoccupations, self-preoccupations, and what the ancients referred to as mirror mind, and the practice is dusting off the mirror, so that it reflects what's in front of it, starting with yourself, of course, first and foremost is yourself. If you think this is all about working with other people, we've already been doing that. We spend much of our time blaming everyone else for our problems. And they no doubt have a role in it, but if there's going to be any real uh, change, then it's numero uno that has to be looked at us. We have to look at, and apparently we humans don't like to do that. We don't want to do it. So we gather together in buildings like this, we support one another. We encourage each other. Uh, we'll do anything. We put up a statue of someone, you know, I, I don't know. You know, they grind these out in Thailand by the thousands. Here comes another, <laughs> here comes another busload of American tourists. Okay. <laughs> He's always happy. And we have, we have one in the garden, snow, rain, it doesn't matter. But he's not a person. We're people. Okay, so uh, uh, the skill that we're developing is this ability to, and the we have techniques here, whether it's the breath or metta, and there's so many more, mantras. And, and then finally, that in, in the Buddhist teaching is called shamatha, which is the calming, tranquilizing, enabling the mind to become serene. That's not the end. And people often stop there. And if you wish to do that, let's say you're all stressed out. That's the key thing now. Uh, and you just want to calm down and experience some, some serenity and peace.
great, just do it. But that isn't liberation or wisdom because once you leave, let's say you can get very good at breath awareness or meta and just feel wonderful, just tremendous joy and bliss. And then it's like taking a cold shower on a hot day. A half an hour later, you need another shower. So that wisdom is seeing the cause of your suffering, uh, central to the Buddha's teaching, is karma. But don't get romantic about karma. Just think of it as cause and effect. That is, what is being said, implied here, is that we're responsible for our own plight. And that's talking about our inner life, of course. We've been dealt a certain hand, physically and all kinds, economically and so forth, of course. No one's denying that. But then how do you take your life situation? That varies dramatically from one person to another. And so the mind not only needs to be very calm and steady, but it needs to see connections between when I do this, and of course, crucial in the Buddha's teaching, at any rate, and it's for you to test it, see if it's so, attachment, craving and attachment, suffering. It's a changing world. If you hold on in that changing world, how can you not suffer? Everything is changing. So it's not that you can't have that the suffering is in money or in sex or in food. It's that we get attached and obsessional about it. We're not free of it. So it's the, the, the calmness and the steadiness, the stability of mind is a prerequisite for the clear seeing in, in every way, not just in, starting with yourself and every other, whatever you like, nothing's left out. The Buddha was known as someone who mastered come what may seeing. Listen to that, come what may. In other words, we're learning how to matter because a lot of things that turn up, we, we don't want, do you want to look at fear? If you just walked in here, some of you have or knew, uh, you need help. And some of us, it's not like uh, we're completely fearless. We, I've had a lot of help from some wonderful teachers. And so it's workable. And life has become much more workable. Why? Because it's observable. But if, the, if there isn't a steadiness, a stability, so that the mind is a fit instrument, the seeing is stable enough so that it can see and grasp the significance of what's happening. That is, how you speak, how you keep your mind, how you speak, and how you act has consequences. There are results. Put your hand in the fire, it gets burned. Well, it's much more subtle in emotional life, but it's the same principle. Test it, see if it's so. Anytime you're suffering, look at it and say, why am I suffering right now? You may be able to in, right away see it. However, the transformation and the liberation requires a mind that's quite steady. Awareness, or mindfulness, whatever language you like, can become like a flame. It's not magic. It comes from practice, from doing it, from applying awareness when you do the dishes, applying awareness when you listen to your child, applying awareness first and foremost on yourself. It does help to do some sitting, to go away to the country or places like this for periods of time where it's protected, where you have a group of like-minded people and where there's peace, and so that you can hone these skills and refine these skills. And 
the freedom and the real wisdom comes from being willing to take a look at how you actually live and seeing in this approach the standard. How do you know if you're... It's a skill. In the Buddha's way of looking at things, wisdom is a skill that can be learned. In other words, you can learn how to live. So I've neglected all you guys. Uh, so is my neck. Uh, you can learn how to live, but you have to want to. You have to pay attention. And often, what's very, very difficult is you have to look at things you don't want to look at. Or you start seeing ideals that you have about yourself that are shattered. When you take a look, you see that you have these are ideals. They're just notions. They've given us a certain security. But freedom is to go beyond all that. I don't want to go too much beyond this. Because I do want to allow for some from questions and answers. But the wisdom... Ah, let, let, let me... What standards do we have for whether we're being skillful or not? Well, you know, it's relative. You can't wait until you're perfect. So you do the best you can. Let's say you, some of this makes sense to you. And you, you, do your, you learn some of these methods and techniques in the mind. The mind will become more calm, more steady, more clear. Countless people have done it. If you do it, it will happen. If you don't do it, it won't happen. Not necessarily this style. This is one way of doing it. If this isn't for you, move on, try something else. But it's, you know, breath awareness is pretty good for most people, many people. Okay, uh, as you learn how to do that, then um, you start paying attention to how you are living from moment to moment, and your ability to see clearly improves. Because you're practicing it, you're learning. Look, if you're learning how to cook and you're making a new dish and you put in too much paprika, not enough salt, you taste it, yuck. Okay, so then you put in less. And then you modify until you get it just right. In that sense, it's a skill and your ability to discern this, uh, how you're doing, whether it's skillful. In the Buddhist terms, skillful is what leads, unskillful is what leads to suffering for ourselves and for others. Skillful is what is beneficial, that's helpful for ourselves and others. Well, how do you judge that? Well, our ability to see that improves as we practice it. If you don't practice it, it's pretty hard. And the seeing for, for real transformation to start happening, and it's not reserved for special people who go off to caves, uh, yeah. Well, you know, people like ourselves. Uh, okay, let's just leave it at that. Uh, it can come about as the seeing becomes uh, clearer or more stable than what's in front of it. We're, we're, no, we're no longer tyrannized by the content of our heart. And the understanding can become bone deep. As some of you know, I got that from a cowboy movie. It's not from the Buddha. <laughs> Someone asked Robert Duval, have you ever suffered? I've forgotten which movie. And he said, oh yeah, I've suffered plenty, bone deep. I felt like, yeah. So they're seeing and they're seeing. So you start where you are, and then can you, can you enjoy the learning? For me, it isn't striving to get enlightened. Someday I'll 
become like, if I sit long enough, be like the Buddha. I have photographs of me. Someone took a picture of me sitting many years ago in a full lotus. I look like someone tortured. You know, like I'm going after a second PhD. I don't want to feel this way anymore. I'm going to put an end to it. In our approach, we're learning how to relax and to be alert and sensitive and to learn. Um, I would say that some of what I would like to do is resurrect the joy of learning. In watching my granddaughter, it's so obvious that she loves to learn. Until she gets to a point now she's in the school system and you can see the difference. She comes home crying sometimes. You know. Uh, is there some way to avoid that? Maybe not. It's part of growing up. Everyone suffers. But learning, uh, that's the real discipline in this approach. It's not getting up at the same time and sitting for 45 minutes and sitting for 45 minutes before dinner and doing one, uh, one weekend retreat and then one two-month retreat. It's not that kind of uh, militaristic, regimented, uh, normative behavior. It's a, a commitment to, be, to learn from your life as you live it. And it's very subtle and gentle. It's a quiet passion. People from outside won't even know you're doing it. If, if you're doing it, it's just an interest. And that, that makes quite a difference. Um, yes, last thing. For me, the terminology has been helpful because I am fairly well educated, at least I used to be. Um, when we say someone's intelligent, and that we, when we talk about intelligence, what we usually mean is they have a lot of knowledge, they have a high IQ, they've done you know, all these different uh, indices of accomplishment and measurements of the brain. And that, if someone does well on that, they're intelligent. We've defined intelligence unintelligently, in my opinion, in that that is a form of intelligence, no question about it. But wisdom is another form of intelligence, but it's not one that can be measured that way. And it comes from a clear, empty mind that sees. And here, I don't want to, this is a big subject, but when the mind becomes really quiet, and having a lot of it is because we are suffering less and less. You find yourself becoming more knowing. You find yourself becoming kinder. And you're not trying to be that way. It's somehow the clarity of mind. It's as if it's intrinsic to being human. It isn't just being brutal and sadistic and all that. But you have to go deep enough. Um, so wisdom is what is... War, pollution, those are all symptoms. They're symptoms of the real pollution is the mind. Because everything issues forth from the heart. By mind, I include the heart. And so, in this school, what we're encouraging you to do is learn some of the skills which will enable you to feel, so you won't be helpless, you'll have tools. If you're using thinking, to fix everything, it's the wrong tool. It's not going to work. Whereas for certain kinds of seeing, the mind has to be free of concepts, totally free of it. 
clear seeing. That's what it, that's what that is. So when he's talking about real poetry, what he's talking about is when the mind becomes so calm and clear and steady that there's no self-conscious person who's being aware. And at the beginning, of course there is. We're learning a new skill. But little by little, some of that withers away. And the clearest and some of the happiest moments in life, at least for me, is those moments when it's just, everything is just what it is and you're really seeing it. A good place to practice is with nature because it's less charged. But can we be that way with people? Well, it's harder, sure. Can it be learned? I think so. Forever? No. Um, Okie dokie. I want to change the etiquette of what was read earlier. Uh, let's start in with questions, but if you have to leave, it won't be rude if you can only stay for like five or ten minutes and then you have to leave. I understand people have places to get to and timetables, so let's just get going. Those of you who want to leave, please leave. Uh, and uh, if you have anything that we can talk over together, let's do it, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.